Welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and I'm up in Boston at the annual AACR Pancreatic Cancer Program that happens annually. It happens to be in Boston this year, once again, as it was last year, but it is moving to Philly next year. But I'm sitting here with a special guest of ours, Sahar Nissam from Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston. Sahar, thank you for joining us on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you, Dino. This is a great, uh, great opportunity, and I, I, I love to connect uh, with with people and, and tell us, uh, tell them about what we're doing. So, for our audience listening at home, Sahar, I know we talked a little bit off mic. Yeah. We've got a pretty vast audience of, yeah. of this podcast, and what we always love to do is give our audience members just some background on our guests that we have. So with that, I always say you can go as in depth. I know you're big <laughs> for our listeners at home. Sahar's a big, big, big Red Sox, <laughs> Patriots. He's lived here for a long time, but I don't not want to scare from, off any listeners here. No, no, no. We've got a vast audience. We've got a lot of Red Sox and Patriot yeah. fans. So, uh, but you originally from Philadelphia. That's right. Uh, have done a lot of all your schooling and all your work so far to this point has been in the, the greater Boston area, we'll say. And so for with that being said, I'll pass it over to you and you can go into as much background of where you started and why you started and where you are today. And we'll get into some of the works you're doing today. Sure. So uh, I think a good place to begin in terms of what I'm doing now is one good place. There's a lot of inspirations, but one good place is a uh, patient that I had. Uh, a few years ago. And uh, this is a patient who uh, I was on the internal medicine service at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And uh, this was a patient who had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer about six months prior. And I was taking care of her and I I had the incredible privilege of of meeting her and, and many of her family members. And over the course of the service uh, of the of the medicine service, she eventually succumbed to the disease and passed. And uh, I will never forget the uh, despair and the grief of the family members, and the sense that we on the medicine service had very very little to offer her, and sort of the sense of inevitability that comes with this disease. And it was a very moving and very inspiring moment for me uh, in terms of thinking about, I have a lot of training and I'll, I'll get into that, but where can I dedicate my uh, training, my knowledge, my effort, my passion? And, and so that was a very inspiring moment for me uh, in terms of the, the training that I've had, I, I trained, I, I'm an MD and a PhD. So I have uh, both clinical training and the clinical training is in uh, gastroenterology where uh, I very quickly recognized that pancreatic cancer is one of the most lethal, if not the most lethal gastro, gastroenterologic diseases that we have today. Uh, and uh, I I'm also a cancer geneticist, and what that means is I study the genetic basis of cancers, and in particular, I see uh, families with 
multiple cases of cancer. Uh, families with, in particular, with uh, pancreatic cancer, families with uh, three, four, five cases of pancreatic cancer where you look at the pedigree and you think that has to be, there has to be a genetic basis for this that's passed on from generation to generation. Whoever inherits that mutation has a high risk of pancreatic cancer. And I met these families, and I know I've, I've been following a lot of these families for many years. The vast majority of these families, we know there's a genetic basis, but we don't know what that genetic basis is. And uh, so, so that has been where I've, I've uh, really uh, devoted most of my clinical time. Uh, in terms of the, the scientific background, I uh, have a PhD in genetics. Uh, and uh, that, that was, uh, uh, and, and using that training, um, I also have training in uh, using zebrafish as a model for, uh, uh, for studying uh, cancer rates. And we can, we can discuss that in a little bit. Uh, and, and I, the reason for that, uh, recognizing that uh, zebrafish is kind of an innovative, we were familiar with using mice, uh, mouse models in research. Zebrafish are very similar. They're also an animal model, but with zebrafish, we can have very large populations, hundreds of zebrafish, both with and without a genetic mutation, for example. And we can ask, what is the impact of that genetic mutation on cancer rates? And so uh, compared to mouse or other animal models, zebrafish allow us to very quickly assess the impact of a genetic mutation that we identify in families and see if it actually causes cancer uh, in that model. So combining uh, my clinical uh, specialization in cancer genetics, uh, particularly with pancreatic cancer, along with my scientific training in genetics, and my training with uh, these zebrafish models, putting all of that together, uh, I, I think we're at the intersection of those uh, areas is this really tremendous potential to discover new genes that are responsible for pancreatic cancer, validate that they actually do cause pancreatic cancer, and then most importantly, understand why they cause pancreatic cancer, and from those insights to try to uh, develop new approaches, new medicines, new cancer detection approaches that can help actually prevent pancreatic cancer from forming at all. This is so fascinating, and we're going to jump into some things here in a second, but I want to take a couple steps back. Sure. What about genetics? Like, why the genetic field? Yeah. Like, originally, absolutely. what was the original inclination to get involved? And I know it was great yeah. that you shared the story about the the family or the patient, excuse me, that was hip with pancreatic cancer yeah. that really just touched you. So you you don't have any personal connections to PC. I have not. I, I don't have a family history of pancreatic cancer yeah. myself. Yeah. So for the, the genetics, what was it about genetics that really kind of yeah. spurred the interest? Yeah. So. We are learning a lot about what causes uh, someone to have someone to be tall, someone to be shorter, what causes somebody to have different uh, uh, pigmentation in their skin, uh, different kinds of uh, eye colors and so forth. Also, what leads somebody to have risk of heart disease, risk of stroke, 
and risk of cancer. And we know in all of those different uh, 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 phenotypes or manifestations of disease, we know that there's certainly environment that's a factor. We know if you smoke a lot, if you're obese, uh, if you have particular dietary habits, those things can contribute to disease. But we also know that there are a, th there's a major big contribution of genetics to developing disease. And so uh, on one end of the spectrum, we have uh, genetic mutations that have a very large impact on developing disease. For pancreatic cancer in particular, uh, there's a gene called BRCA2. And individuals with BRCA2 have a very high risk of breast cancer and ovarian cancer. And this is something that is inherited from, from prior generations. Whoever has that mutation has a high lifetime risk of developing cancer. Those mutations can explain, we think they can explain, family clusters of pancreatic cancer. Again, those families with multiple cases of pancreatic cancer. But we also know that aside from those very high impact genetic mutations like BRCA2, there are also genetic variants that are very common in the general population that can modulate an individual's risk up or down. It can either be protective or it can put you at slight risk for developing pancreatic cancer. And the, and the way I think of this, think of smoking or obesity. We know these are risk factors for pancreatic cancer. Just like those risk factors, there are also genetic variants that have a, a small impact on an individual's risk for pancreatic cancer. And by studying those genetic variants and I first discovering what they are and then studying how they actually lead to cancer risk, the thought is maybe we can actually target those genetic variants. And so actually translate that knowledge into uh, ways to prevent pancreatic cancer. And so uh, understanding genetics, I, I think one of the reasons is that uh, I, my, my training in genetics and, and really in the past uh, 15 years or so, we've had a revolution in the tools that we have to understand genetics. And, and really that's the, the ability to sequence somebody's genome. It used to be if, uh, you know, 15 years ago, it would cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, the first genome took many years to, and, and, and millions and millions of dollars to sequence. Now we can sequence your entire genome in a day and have those results, uh, very quickly for under a thousand dollars. I mean, it's, it's really a, an amazing revolution, a technologic revolution that has allowed us to understand genetics in a way that we never before could have dreamed of. And so um, that, that capacity has really allowed us to look at and understand the genetic basis of heart disease, stroke, uh, uh, intelligence, uh, different kinds of behaviors and personalities, and, and, and also risk for pancreatic cancer. So with that, and I, a question just came up and I'm, I'm writing here. Mm -hmm. So there's been this mass proliferation, I guess, of like genetics 
to mainstream. And and yeah. what I mean by that is like the Ancestry.com, yeah. the 23andMe. 23andMe, yeah. So as a genetic expert, and I guess I am putting you on the spot here, yeah, Sahara. Yeah, that's are, fine. Are, are, I mean, my son did Ancestry.com. Yeah, it came yeah, back yeah, and a lot of being, yeah. being of Italian background descent with both parents. And my, my wife is, uh, she's got some Irish in her blood uh, and, and Italian really. But then it came back that my son was like, had Hungarian in him and all these other ethnic groups that I was like really shocked to see. <laughs> so the validation in, in, some of these other group, these groups that I've mentioned, I mean, is it because like pricings come down and it's pretty common or I know there's been, uh, I've talked to groups out in the Midwest and there was a story, another story here for you as well as someone had done a 23andMe and they didn't test for BRCA and the, the lady who did the test was BRCA positive. She knew going in and the 23andMe came back and said, you're not positive for BRCA. So is there a concern? I mean, that, I mean, that, that particular example is very, very concerning, yeah. very, very concerning. And, uh, there has been some concern among clinical geneticists and, and the cancer genetics community that I, of which I'm a part, there has been some concern about, uh, we, we call it direct to consumer genetic testing where, uh, you People can just are doing sort of you can do a cheek swab and, and just order it online, and you get all this information. And uh, I, there has been a little bit of concern that uh, some of these some of these things there there are, and I think it's relatively rare when there is a mistake as egregious as that as, mm -hmm. as calling something negative when it's actually positive. positive yeah. uh, uh, the, the so there there has been a little bit of pushback, but. We have to a, a little bit of concern about that, but I think this is only going to become more and more pervasive. Genetic testing is uh, e even formally in the clinic is going to become more and more pervasive. There are things now today, uh, things called baby seek, where every baby that's born, they're 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 piloting this in studies. Uh, uh, every baby that's born gets their entire genome sequenced or their entire exome sequenced. Why do that? Well, maybe there are mutations that you can discover earlier rather than waiting until somebody presents with a disease. Um, and the whole rationale for testing, uh, there's a lot of debate right now on whether we should test everybody for BRCA2 mutations or uh, what we call high penetrance mutations that have a clear link to cancer. And, and I, I think there are very good arguments for that. Um, Do I you think, think people, everyone should get tested for BRCA gene mutation as a general population? Yeah. So I think it'll be interesting to see how this evolves. I think if we test everybody, our uh, that will refine our understanding of how BRCA2 actually manifests with breast cancer risk. And, and to explain what I mean by that, the people who have been tested in the past are people who have a very strong family history of, of breast cancer, for example. And so that kind of skews the population of people who you're testing for. And so the link between BRCA2 and the impact uh, that it has on breast cancer uh, 
the estimate that you have from that particular population may not be the same as the estimate that you get from the general population. Um, so I think broad testing, broad population testing of BRCA2, I think it will have, uh, there are genes like BRCA2 where there's a very clear association with cancer. And I think that is absolutely of value to people. Um, and it will be interesting to see how that evolves and how that refines our understanding of the actual impact on cancer risk. Um, and also the impacts in different genetic backgrounds. You know, uh, uh, the same, and we see this in the clinic, the same BRCA2 mutation in one family presents with lots of breast cancers or lots of ovarian cancers. And the same mutation in another family presents with pancreatic cancers or in another family with not as many cancers. And so clearly on top of this genetic background, there may be other genetic modifiers. There are other environmental factors that can influence how a genetic mutation manifests. That's fascinating. I mean, I think with technology and science over the last 15 years, the advances and in particular in genetics now with the, and you mentioned something before, and I remember this, like the pricing of genetic yeah. testing was yeah. so expensive and now it's kind of come down, um, to some degree, I, I think in certain areas, it's still very expensive for some people. And now insurances, uh, insurance companies now are more open to pay. Um, it's less of a, of a challenge as it was in the past. With what you're doing right now, and I'm going to shift here a little bit because we talked about it. Your work right now is really focused on identifying not necessarily the BRCA population because that's kind of what we know about, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, for the last probably five years, I know BRCA's, I mean, there's been a lot of groups that have, and thankfully to the breast cancer, my mom's a breast cancer, two-time breast cancer survivor, as we talked about yesterday. I think they've done a great job identifying, you know, the BRCA gene. And there's some, some really cool stuff that's happening in that space. But we do know that also affects what we're here for, which is pancreatic cancer, a big part. But there's this whole other, what would we call them, variances or unknown. Correct. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I know we were talking a little bit off the mic yesterday. And that's really where you're focused in right now with yeah. your work, right? Yeah. So there's there's a couple things there. Uh, one is, I, I think you sort of alluded to this at the very end, variants of uncertain significance. These are, we call them variants because we're not sure if they have no impact at all, they're completely benign, or if those variants are actually causing cancer risk, and therefore we would call them mutations. So a variant is basically a change in the DNA sequence of a gene. That's um, abnormal. So it's not normal. Well, it doesn't it's, contain... It's, no, I, I wouldn't call it abnormal. It's just a variation from the reference, what we call the reference genome. So that variation could be completely benign, or that variation could cause disease, in which case we typically call it a mutation. Mm -hmm. So in BRCA2 or other well-known cancer-related genes, there are variants that we know absolutely this variant will cause cancer risk. Those variants we call mutations. Then there are variants that we haven't classified yet. And 
part of the reason we haven't been able to classify those variants, and we call them VUSs, or variant of uncertain significance. So these VUSs, we haven't been able to classify because we're not sure what impact it has on the BRCA2 protein. And furthermore, we just haven't seen enough people to be able to really confidently say, this is benign, because we've, we see this variant in a lot of people who are walking around and they have no history of breast cancer, or this is actually really a mutation we should worry about because we see this particular variant in a lot of people who have a personal or family history of breast cancer. So in known cancer genes, we have a lot of these variants of uncertain significance of VUSs. We also have and, and this is in families who have, say, they have a family history of breast cancer. We find a bracket two variant of uncertain significance. We don't know how to classify that. We also have many families, uh, and this is a, another area of particular interest for me, families with a very strong family history of cancer, in particular pancreatic cancer, that have no variants that we know of in bracket two and we don't know what the genetic explanation for those families are, what the explanations are. And presumably, there is another gene like BRCA2, it's sort of like the next BRCA2 that we have not discovered yet. Uh, the most famous of these families is actually uh, President Jimmy Carter, who had uh, three siblings and a parent who all died of pancreatic cancer, I think in, in their 50s or so. And uh, that family has never been solved. And presumably, there is a genetic mutation. It's in, in several generations. Presumably, there's a genetic mutation that is associated with a very high risk of pancreatic cancer. And we have not been able to discover that. And, and I, when I began on this effort uh, about 10 years or, or so ago, uh, I tried very hard to get those samples from from uh, from, from, Jim. from Jimmy Carter, and uh, it, I, unfortunately, a lot of those samples were collected in the 1980s, and so they've long been lost. Uh, but and he's had brain cancer. Which he's is, he, right? he had a melanoma. Melanoma. Yeah, cancer. he had a melanoma, and it's hard to say if that melanoma was related to the cancer syndrome that is apparent in his relatives and his siblings and his parent, uh, because all of those relatives had pancreatic cancer at a, a relatively young age. Um, Jimmy Carter developed melanoma at a relatively later, later age, and it's hard to say if that was connected or not. Um, and, and I think that also kind of exemplifies one of the challenges with this. By the time a family syndrome is recognized, unfortunately, a lot of relatives who may have already succumbed to pancreatic cancer. And so uh, by the time a family syndrome is, is recognized, it may be difficult or impossible to get blood samples for genetic testing and genetic analysis in those, those deceased relatives. And so what we'd like to do is to be proactive about this and to start collecting samples on everyone 
who everybody who has had a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer and to start being very proactive about making these doing these studies and making these links so and we're going to talk about that in yeah. a second the prevention i hear this often we have families that are connected to our charity whether they're participating in an event have lost a loved one have a loved one fighting or we've helped them financially and they go and you know the the guidelines now is to get genetic tested yeah. and they have these multiple family members that have had the disease some of them have succumbed to the disease but their genetic testing comes back no BRCA, yeah, right? Exactly. So what yeah. advice could we give those folks maybe listening? Like, what should they do? Should they go back then, sit here and say like, hey, I, I wanna be monitored or I wanna do further genetic testing? Is it possible? Does insurance pay for that? I, I, yeah, so what we're doing- Do they call you? I mean- Yeah, like, so so in our clinic, we are really, uh, we and, and we've evolved over time. If you asked me this question five years ago, it would have been, uh, a, a, a slightly different answer because we've, and the reason we've evolved is we've realized even there are even people with no strong family history that you might not suspect have a mutation who actually have a mutation. And so even if, so anyone who has a pancreatic cancer diagnosis, we would do genetic testing on. And the situation that you're describing where somebody uh, has a family history, they do a panel, and, and just for our listeners to, to explain what that means, a panel is where we test for multiple genes, pretty much every gene that has been associated with cancer, BRCA2, P53, um, there, there's a number of genes that have been associated with cancer. We test for variants in all of those genes. That's what a panel means. And very often, I, I can say more often than not, unfortunately, those panels come back unrevealing. We don't find any clear smoking gun that can explain why so many people in that family had cancer. And when we find families like that, what we want to do is to do a, a genome analysis, a whole genome analysis in multiple family members with the hope of being able to identify a genetic mutation in a gene that has never before been associated with cancer. And so to those people who do not have an answer, I, I, they can contact us, and this is being done at other centers as well. We're now increasingly appreciating the value of doing a, a sort of a whole genome survey to try to discover these other new smoking guns that could explain the, the clustering of cancer in that family. Another question that just popped up, and yeah. this happens often is, and this just happened with a family, they said, oh, I got tested five years ago and it was negative. Should those folks who had family history prior to, let's say, 2017, uh, because that's kind of when this shift happened, or maybe even 2018, should they go back and get retested if it's been more than five years? I, I, I would say yes. I, I would say, you know, so the practices, so first of all, the practices have changed over time. The practices are also not uh, necessarily uniform across different hospitals. Um, and we have had referrals of people exactly as you describe who uh, 
previously had genetic testing, but that genetic testing wasn't complete. And uh, it only tested, uh, you know, two genes or only for certain known mutations in BRCA2, but not a, a more comprehensive testing of BRCA2. So for those individuals, absolutely, I would, I would recommend that they have uh, uh, they consider or have at least consultation in a clinic that can help them decide if they should have repeat genetic testing. I think the other part of this is that uh, these panels are changing all the time. And that, that is really the fruit of doing research in this. We're discovering new genes and uh, these new genes are being added onto panels. Uh, and and uh, if I could, uh, I, I'll just sort of visualize this for the, for the listeners. We have a pie chart of all the cases of pancreatic cancer. In that pie chart, about 10% of cases we think are perhaps familial because there are multiple cases of pancreatic cancer in one family. Of those cases of pancreatic cancer, only about 10% or less have a known explanation. Those known explanations are BRCA2 and uh, that some we think uh, Lynch syndrome is another cancer syndrome that maybe can be connected with pancreatic cancer uh, risk. Uh, cases of hereditary pancreatitis can contribute to pancreatic cancer risk. All of those explanations make up less than 10% of those families. And so there's a huge part of that pie chart. About 90% of these families have not been solved. And so there's a lot of potential for discovery. And, and I think we, we can talk about uh, what the value of discovering those new genes is. There's tremendous potential, not only for those families, obviously, obviously for those families, knowing what the smoking gun is can be transformative because other relatives can get tested. We also, in, in some cases like BRCA2, there may be ways to actually target if relatives develop pancreatic cancer associated with that mutation. There are new ways that we can actually target uh, those cancers associated with BRCA2, for example. Um, and so there are a lot of implications for the family, but we also hope there will be implications for sporadic cases of pancreatic cancer as well. Just understanding how one mutation can lead to pancreatic cancer uh, in, 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 you know, in later in life, that very strong causal link can give us precious insights into, into the disease that we may be able to translate even more broadly to the, the general population. And we, and we can talk about uh, thing, ways we can do that. And that's a, this is a great segue from what we were just talking about, because I know yesterday we talked a little bit about this, which was yeah. prevention yeah. and where this Absolutely. leads to. So Absolutely. let's talk a little bit about prevention and what we may see yeah. for the disease and Absolutely. what you're working on. Absolutely. So I, I, I think I, just broad, just to take a step back, I think, uh, I'm very optimistic that uh, we will be able to make some important advances in pancreatic cancer. I think 
a lot of, we know this is a very challenging disease and we know we've had sadly very little progress in the past uh, several decades, but we now have new technologies, technologies, again, we talked about genetic sequencing technologies that we couldn't have imagined uh, 20 years ago that are now available now. We have new approaches like immunotherapy uh, that uh, are, are, are they're, they're, we're learning a lot about and may potentially uh, have an impact on this disease. An area that I think uh, is still tremendously, uh, has tremendous potential, but is, is relatively uh, untapped is prevention, and uh, what I what I want to uh, uh, suggest a, a little thought experiment that we can do here, and, and and the listeners can do. Think about heart disease, heart attacks. Think about heart disease and heart attacks and stroke. For those diseases, we have aspirin, we have Lipitor, and a number of other statins. We have so many medications that can control blood pressure. And we know that all of these medications, which are under the category of chemo prevention, um, all of these medications can lower somebody's risk of heart disease and stroke. And those medications uh, have, have been a huge part of how we tackle heart disease and stroke. Do you know how many chemo preventative medicines we have for pancreatic cancer? Zero. Zero. Exactly. So, and 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 that's I, I think really unfortunate, but there's a huge potential for that. And we want to change that. How are we going to change that? So uh, we talked about uh, one big area of getting clues for targets for chemo prevention. One big area is discovering these genetic variants that we think have an association with cancer risk. So again, going back to that example of smoking and obesity, we know very clearly smoking, we know obesity are risk factors for pancreatic cancer. Just like smoking and obesity, we also know that there are genetic variants uh, that can impact your risk either higher or lower. And and by genetic variants, we talked about BRCA2, but there are also genetic variants that are very common in the general population that can sort of fine-tune your risk up or down. And by studying those genetic variants, we're getting insights into how different genes can influence risk for pancreatic cancer. And by understanding that link to risk, we think what we are are developing is strategies to target those pathways, those genetic pathways, so that we can actually modulate pancreatic cancer risk. So just envision uh, being able to take, and this is especially important, for individuals who are at higher risk because they have a family history uh, or they have, they carry something like a BRCA2 mutation. Um, For those individuals, imagine being able to take a medication every day, just like you take your multivitamins, uh, a daily medication that over time can slow the development of pancreatic cancer. And and we like to use this term interception. 
uh, this idea that we can actually intercept that pathway that we've identified from these genetic variants and and, uh, people at risk, if we can actually intercept that pathway and slow the development of pancreatic cancer in these individuals so that uh, instead of Uh, you know, a trajectory of developing pancreatic cancer in your 50s or 60s or 70s, we change that trajectory so that you would develop pancreatic cancer at age 200. And and just think, you know, this is hypothetical and theoretical, but the, the idea is maybe we can target these pathways to slow the development of pancreatic cancer so that we essentially and virtually can prevent the disease from ever occurring. Um, and just th- and keeping that's, it at bay, basically. Just keeping it at bay, slowing it down, uh, and and preventing it. So one of the things I, I I I can introduce the listeners to, we know from uh, studying these cancers from over the past ten years, a lot of these insights developed. We know from studying pancreatic cancer that, first of all, it's a disease in which genetic mutations occur in cells of the pancreas. And uh, that process of accumulating genetic mutations from a normal pancreas cell to a cell that can become a cancer, it can invade, and then eventually to a cell that can metastasize and can spread to other parts of the body. The process, the time from the initial genetic mutation to the ability to actually invade that time we think is over 10 years. And so, so people that are walking around. People are walking around with these mutations. And 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 this also I think surprises a lot of people. The most common mutation in pancreatic cancer is a KRAS mutation. Which most people have, right? Shocking. I think this shocks a lot of people, but a lot of people are walking around with KRAS mutations and they never develop pancreatic cancer. So there are a lot of other steps to uh, the progression of a cell to becoming a cancer cell. And so what that, that tells me, that gives me a lot of hope that we can actually, we actually have a huge window of time to actually apply these interception uh, or chemo preventative strategies uh, so that we can, instead of a 10-year progression, can we change that to 50 years or never by a chemopreventative strategy? For example, say you take a daily medicine, just like you take aspirin or Lipitor, you prevent heart disease or you prevent stroke. Can we have a daily, daily medication that can prevent pancreatic cancer from ever forming in the first place? And uh, I, I think this is a there's tremendous potential in this, and I'm I'm really excited about uh, the the future in this area because uh, we're we're investing a lot, we're putting a lot of effort uh, and a lot of uh, research time uh, to to really try to to flesh this out, discover what those genetic variants are that can modulate risk understand those pathways and figure out how can we target those pathways with new medicines. Staying on that point about having these interceptors and I, and I kind of, I was thinking as you were talking, it's kind of like you're building this roadmap, right? 
and we don't know what the map looks like to get to disease progression, right? But if we can find ways where we put up roadblocks mm -hmm. or exits exactly to that, exactly. it's just so fascinating to me because this has never been done. When you talk about prevention, and I know you mentioned like medicines or some sort of statin like heart disease has yeah. and other uh, diseases that they're able to do this for and have done this for. Do you think, and, and this is kind of a, a something that's really topical right now, like CBD yeah. and, you know, um, the cannabis and diet and lifestyle. In your personal opinion, do you think that could be part of this? prevention is just i mean i mean we do know like you know smoking and alcohol i'm not talking about that but yeah. other things that are healthy could that be part of the equation or because we see so, patients yeah. i'm sure you see patients you yeah. know someone who never smoked he never yeah. drank yeah he worked yeah. out five times five times a week he was a runner yeah uh never ate fast food and yeah. then they get the disease exactly so i think this goes back to uh what we were discussing earlier about the inter interplay between genetics and environment and uh we know that uh uh, people with the same environmental risk, there are smokers who will never develop cancer. And then there are smokers who will develop cancer. And uh, clearly we know without a doubt, smoking is a cancer risk, but different people with a different genetic basis will respond to that risk differently. Uh, and so absolutely, I think there are lifestyle measures that, uh, can influence somebody's risk. And, and you know, the, the most obvious one, again, is smoking and smoking and, and risks of lung cancer and risks of pancreatic cancer as well. Um, that's a very obvious, obvious thing. And that's a, a you know, a no-no, a very obvious no-no. I would throw vaping in there right now because vaping is such a buzz and so many young kids. Yeah. And, we're, we're, and we still don't know. And we, we still don't know. And, and there's, there are some reports that are raising a lot of red flags. A lot of, we're, we're seeing a lot of, uh, uh, unexplained deaths and, and some other things that have been reported. And, and so we're, we're learning a lot about that as well. Uh, but certainly uh, traditional cigarette tobacco smoking, we know is without a doubt a very strong risk factor for a number of cancers, including lung cancer and pancreatic cancer. On top of that, there are also genetic risk factors. And, and uh, as, as you mentioned, Dino, we see this in our clinic as well. There are individuals who are have a very health, healthy lifestyle. They're very athletic. They eat well. Um, no concerns of obesity. Uh, they're very healthy overall. And they develop pancreatic cancer. And, and uh, some of those patients it's, we're trying to understand why that happens. Um, in some of those patients, there's a genetic basis, uh, and that genetic basis can be something like a BRCA2 mutation, which is a very high effect, we call that, or a high impact genetic mutation that leads to pancreatic cancer risk. In other patients, it can be a uh, combination of multiple different genetic variants that each one on their own doesn't have a big impact, but in combination may be contributing to a risk for pancreatic cancer. And so 
that entire spectrum from little uh, genetic variants that have a small impact on risk that maybe in combination with other variants can lead to pancreatic cancer, all the way to mutations like in genes like BRCA2, that entire spectrum, understanding that entire genetic basis across that spectrum uh, will, will give us a lot of insights into why the disease occurs and from those insights, new targets for prevention. Fascinating. I've got two questions left. Yeah. First one is, where do we go from here in the sense of, okay, so we, we've identified that there is this population out there that we have no idea. So where do we go from there? And, and, and part of that is what's the biggest challenge to this whole process? Yeah. So right now, right now, yeah. I think one of the challenges that uh, we are uh, really, I, I think, working on and, and changing very quickly is awareness. And uh, by awareness, I, I, I mean the recognition that there can be familial syndromes for uh, cancer. And that recognition is both in, it is in, in particular in the clinical world uh, where physicians are learning more and more that there is a place for genetic testing when somebody comes in and they have a diagnosis of a cancer, there is a role for genetic testing. And so, uh, and, and that awareness is important because as, as you know, the examples that we discussed earlier, by the time a family syndrome is recognized, a lot late. of the relatives may have succumbed to the disease. And it's very difficult, if not impossible, to discover the genetic basis when you can't get a DNA sample from a deceased relative. And so I think one of the uh, challenges that we're overcoming very quickly, and, and I think thanks to things like this podcast where we can actually um, uh, educate people and uh, both the, the lay public and clinicians alike. I think the value of, of uh, understanding these things is that there's improved awareness. And uh, I, I think that can give us a better head start on studying these families and learning from uh, the, these genetic mutations. Last question, and this is a great segue, is where are we in five years? What does this look like? Uh, you know, it's, I know it's, it's a tough question. It's a tough question because I, no, no, it's, it's, and there's a lot of moving parts. It's I, I, well, I, I laugh because I think uh, it's exciting. I think if you asked me in it, it's 2019 now, if you asked me 2014, where will we be in five years? I, things are moving so, so quickly and it's, very exciting. I, we, we know that pancreatic cancer is a very challenging disease. Uh, but I think we, I am optimistic that we will make some important advances, uh, in, 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 in the next five, 10 years that will really make a dent in, in a disease that has been largely intractable for decades. And, uh, I think the biggest areas, there's a lot of excitement right now about immunotherapy. And uh, the way I think about immunotherapy, it's almost like a cellular surgery 
uh, we, we talked a little bit about this earlier. One of the, in fact, the most effective treatment for pancreatic cancer right now is surgery. And sur if, if you can get the cancer cut out, that is, that gives you one of the most, it's one of the most effective ways to treat the disease and gives you the best uh, uh, outlook. The problem is that oftentimes the disease is diagnosed too late and it's, and, and oftentimes individuals are not candidates for surgery. So that sort of raises two things. One about immunotherapy. If there's a way to almost kill the cancer, uh, it's almost like a cellular kind of surgery that kills the cancer. Um, uh, that, that's kind of one way to think about immunotherapy, sort of unleashing your body's own immune system to attack and to kill the cancer cell. So there's a lot of excitement about that. Um, unlike other kinds of cancers, I think uh, where there's been tremendous headway for immunotherapy, uh, pancreatic cancer has been has has kind of lagged, and we're trying to learn why that is. So that's that's a, another a, a very big area of of research that I think will make a lot of progress in the next few years. Um, we talked about uh, I, I just alluded to detection and people presenting late when they're no, no longer surgical candidates. So one of the things that we're trying to do is to try to uh, detect the cancer earlier. And we're learning about what are the best ways to actually screen for the cancer. And we have modalities like an MRI uh, and, and a particular MRI called an MRCP, which is protocol for visualizing the pancreas. We also have something called an endoscopic ultrasound or an EUS. Um, to visualize the pancreas at, at very good resolution. And we're learning by doing this in, in a lot of people who are at high risk, we're learning what are the features that are more or less suspicious and can we actually catch these cancers uh, at a very early stage, early enough that we can actually cut it out, surgically resect it, and give an individual who is diagnosed the best chance for uh, 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 prevailing and, and uh, having a, a good outcome. And then uh, I think the, the, uh, the third area is what we've been talking about. I am very excited about uh, the potential for developing chemopreventative strategies. Um, and again, this is studying the genetic variants that lead to pancreatic cancer risk learning about those pathways and identifying ways that we can target those pathways so that we can intercept or prevent the cancer from forming at all in the first place. I just made a note and someone who you know very well, a good friend of ours, Dr. Simeon, Diane Simeon. Yeah. We, we have this conversation all the time and it's screening saves lives. Yes. And I think we're going to get to that point. Absolutely. And a lot of what you're doing here is, you know, that, as we said, the early prevention and the screening of these high-risk groups. Um, so it's just fascinating stuff to me, and I'm really super excited. And um, the last question I yeah, have, yeah. and our audience is very vast, if someone hears something on this podcast and they want to reach out to you, yeah. 
what's the best way to find out or to get involved with your clinic and what you're doing up here in Boston at Brigham and Women's, uh, which is part of Dana-Farber. Yeah. So what's the best way that they can do that? Yeah, well, I'm happy to uh, uh, receive emails from folks who have questions, uh, who, who who have questions about what we're doing, uh, who want to support what we're doing. We, we're, uh, you know, any little bit of uh, funding support is is very, very helpful. Uh, individuals who want to be seen have a family history or have some questions about their cancer risk, we're happy to see them in our clinic. Uh, I think the easiest way is they can uh, either email you, e- email which is me. the email here, which is the snissom at partners.org. Actually, it, they they can use that email, but uh, that, that's so partners has now they've changed it. They've updated the email. So um, either uh, snissom at uh, bwh.harvard.org is the yeah, best email. Yeah, I, I can I can can I give you that? Uh, yeah, after we can do that yeah, afterwards. Yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. put a link in the yes. uh, we'll put that in the in the link below when yeah. you listen to the podcast. So awesome! I'll give you I'll give you uh, two emails. There's both a Brigham and Women's Hospital email, and there's also a Dana, Dana Farber email. I'll just I'll write that out for you, and I'm very happy to uh, answer questions that that people have. Uh, if people want to be seen in our clinic, if they have uh, concerns about their family history or personal history, we're very happy to, to see them. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Sahar Nissam, thank you for joining the Project Purple podcast. I am really excited. This was, we just met yesterday and I said, hey, I got to have you on the <laughs> podcast. What you're doing is awesome. It's fascinating. I see as one of the rising stars in the pancreatic cancer space, and I appreciate all that you're doing. And for our folks listening at home, please, if you have a concern about family history, reach out, go get checked, whether it's with uh, Dr. Nissum and his team up here in Boston or somewhere else locally where you can find someone that is doing research like this, by all means, please do yourself a favor and go get checked out. With that, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. Okay. Thank you so much, Dino. And I just will add what you are doing with Project Purple is tremendous and keep at it. Thank you. That's a wrap. (laughs) 